Hey, this is Kevin Bossenmeyer with UCI Conversations, and today we're going to be exploring autism and neurodevelopmental disorders. My guest is Dr. David Moncarsh. He's a clinical developmental psychologist who has worked with individuals with autism and their families since 1980. He's served as an assistant clinical professor of pediatrics at the UCI Medical Center for 36 years and has been involved with the UCI Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders since its inception in 2001. Dr. Moncarsh's psychological practice focuses on helping individuals along the autism spectrum acquire adaptive behaviors that enhance their understanding of self and others to promote community integration and a sense of personal competence. Just to put it in a nutshell, an expert in high-functioning autism and Asperger's spectrum. There's a lot of questions, and we can't wait to explore this. Welcome, doctor. How are you today? Pretty good, thanks. Great. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Before we get into the specifics, why don't you just tell us where you went to school and maybe just even where you grew up? Right. Well, so I grew up in West Los Angeles, and I got my Ph.D. at USC, And as part of my degree program, I spent three years at Children's Hospital Los Angeles at the university-affiliated program that's a multidisciplinary training program to deal with young people with developmental disability. And one day in 1980, a friend who was also training told me he saw a very interesting child and asked if I wanted to follow him up therapeutically. Well, I did. Up until that time, I was planning to become an infant psychologist. I wrote my dissertation on 12 and 24-month-old. And that day, I was introduced to autism by this young boy, and it captivated me. So for the last 39 years, my life has been focused and devoted on learning more about development and how to help individuals who have different brains. And that meeting changed the course of my life. Interesting. So... You said you were originally interested in infant psychology, which is interesting. It seems like that would automatically mean autism, but not necessarily. So, yeah. you know, some children, you know, are born of high risk pregnancies, they're in the intensive neonatal unit. And so, I was interested in studying, you know, young children at risk for neurodevelopmental difficulty. And so, that's what I initially did. I spent time in a genetics clinic. I specialized in assessing, you know, children up to 24 months of age. Ultimately, it segued quite well into autism, right? Because nowadays we're able to diagnose children younger and younger. And when I began learning and working with individuals with autism in 1980, people didn't understand that there was a very high, mild end of the spectrum. And people thought four out of 10,000 people experienced autism. Now, the current statistics are worldwide, approximately one out of every 58 individuals have different kinds of brains. And because males present with autism at a ratio of four to one to females, we're probably really looking at three or 4% of all males on the planet having some form of autism. Hmm. Is there any statistics in terms of worldwide Does autism show up any more in Western culture, Eastern culture, and country to country? Right. Well, so my understanding from an epidemiological perspective is, no, it's uniform around the world. What really differs is the skill and training for people to begin to effectively do the diagnosis for individuals who are more mild. Right. So as I said, when I began, people had stereotypes of autistic individuals as being headbangers, never developing language, probably requiring residential care for the rest of their life. And and over time, we began to to see that there were a lot of individuals with normal intelligence, you know, who could be quite successful in the world, who had many of these same issues regarding social communication, reciprocal social interaction, you know, ideational and behavioral fluidity that were meeting diagnostic criteria for autism. And really what we began to talk about was pervasive developmental disorders and qualitative impairments rather than gross impairments that were quite visible, you know, to even lay people that someone had a significant developmental problem. But my understanding is around the world, pretty much the statistics hold. And 
It's fascinating because for so long, nobody understood that at all. And originally, people thought autism was a form of infantile psychosis, which it is not. Infantile psychosis, just right. briefly, what okay, is Okay, so, you know, we all generally think of psychosis as a form of mental illness where individuals are out of touch with the real world, right, so to speak, what, what we believe constitutes the real world. And so when you had children who were not forming bonds with primary caregivers and attachments, who weren't learning to communicate or would talk to themselves, would prefer to be alone or play with objects repetitively rather than observe the world around them, imitate what they see, become socialized in a manner similar to peers around them, people thought that was a form of mental illness rather than a neurodevelopmental disorder that really reflected having a different kind of brain. Interesting. You know, I think just me as a, a lay person, I'm getting information just from you describing that. So you got interested pretty early on in your career how long were you in L.A. until you migrated down right. to Orange County? Well, so, you know, as part of my dissertation, I was looking for data using something called the Bailey Scales of Infant Development, and I was connected with the UCI Department of Neonatology in 1981 or toward the end of 80. And as the result of that, I went out to visit them, you know, when the neonatology department was in trailers at the UCI Medical Campus, and they had a broad range of follow-up data for children who were high-risk neonates that they allowed me to use. So I used the data from the UCI High-Risk Neonate Clinic for my dissertation on infancy, and then when I finished in 1982, I had come out to Orange County, began to develop a private practice as a clinical child psychologist, and I was invited to be an assistant clinical professor. And there began my association with the Department of Developmental Pediatrics and Pediatrics in general that has lasted till this day. Mm, excellent. So when does the Autism Center for UCI and Neurodevelopmental Disorder. Were you involved with that formation or was it already there? Or? What happened was that we did not have a focus center dealing with children who had autism spectrum related issues. The Department of Pediatrics was always the department that was seeing individuals just like child psychiatry or pediatric neurology might see kids with autism. But as the expertise grew in the community to diagnose and increasingly to diagnose early because the real key to intervention is to diagnose early and begin to help children come into the world and acquire skills because during the formative years of their life, it literally changes the development of their brain, mm. right? And so I don't know what year, perhaps it was 2001, the first center was established that was called 4OC Kids was the first center in Orange County specifically dealing with individuals with autism. And so I, because of my involvement with people in pediatrics, even though I'm primarily in private practice, was engaged with the individuals who created that center from which the autism center evolved mm -hmm. later on. When did they change the name, do you recall? You know, so I don't remember how many years ago. It was not that many years. I would say maybe five or six years, oh, okay. right? And initially, besides money coming from UCI, there was money coming from state money. I forget what proposition provided money for children's health care and, and programs of this nature. And so a lot of people have supported the establishment of this wonderful program for our community. And it has really increasingly begun to serve children and families very, very well. If you joined us late today, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is Dr. David Monkarsh, who is affiliated with the UCI Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders. We are exploring what autism is. Now back to the interview. How prevalent is this? When you are personally involved, 
you're very active and, and know what's going on. But for people who don't have a personal connection, can you describe how... Well, so here, here's what began to happen. As I said, when I first began to specialize in autism, it was relatively esoteric. And people had, as I said, this old-time stereotypical notion of autism. And long ago, people believed that autism pertaining to the issue of infantile psychosis was really a psychosocial disorder related to a poor relationship between an infant and his or her mother. Long ago, there was a prominent psychoanalyst who spoke about refrigerator mothers at the University of Chicago, Bruno Bebelheim, and was suggesting autism and a developmental difficulty of this magnitude was really a reflection of mothers who didn't know how to parent their children rather than a neurological-based issue. So for a long while, that's what people believed, that it was bad parenting that created children who were withdrawn and not engaged in the world. From this doctor, educator, who had this strong thesis and people followed it. People followed it. Out of the University of Chicago, he created you know, a famous center and wrote extensively from a psychoanalytic perspective about autism. And I don't know what year things began to shift and people really came to understand that people began to develop a different brain in the first or second trimester of pregnancy and that people were born with autism. But one of the deceptive things about autism is maybe 25 to 35 percent of children who have autism experience what we call an autistic regression. So that means during the first year and often parts of their second year of life, they look like they're typically developing. They make eye contact, they seek comfort, they begin to develop early language, and then all of a sudden, children begin to lose skills that they had acquired. So we call that an autistic regression. Not all children who have autism experience an autistic regression. And so people began to realize that there was more than, so to speak, met the eye, and began to realize that there was a subset of the autism population who looked like they were developing typically, and all of a sudden, the light went off, and yeah. children began to regress and move into their own world and be less reachable. And then, little by little, we began to see it, you know, because people have understood about child development for a long, long while, people began to understand that early intervention diagnosis could begin to teach skills to autistic children that they didn't acquire naturally. You know, so individuals who are born with a neurotypical brain have a brain that is set up to relate to others, to pay attention to their environment, to want to acquire language, to be able to use their eyes to imitate and do observational learning. And that's how we're all basically socialized. If you have a brain that's set up to do it, parents don't teach children how to talk, how to play, things of that nature. But what we began to discover is, as we've increasingly begun to identify children earlier, particularly the higher functioning children, very often, you know, I used to see five, six, eight-year-old children who were never diagnosed, because if you have normal intelligence and you have language, people may assume you're weird, but they never imagine that individuals who had that skill set had autism. So... Once we began to realize that there were milder, more subtle, nuanced impairments associated with autism, people began to diagnose at an earlier and earlier age, Yeah. right? And because the medical diagnosis of autism is associated with the Psychiatric Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, the criteria in order to be diagnosed with autism has changed over the years. As I said, initially it was called, I think in the DSM-2, infantile psychosis. As people began to understand autism was not a mental disorder, but rather a neurological-based and developmental disorder, then they began to look at different markers so that around the world people could have a unified set of criteria in order to determine whether a child was experiencing this developmental difficulty. And Dr. Martin Karsh just uh, mentioned uh, DSM-2, and I recently discovered that basically psychologists have, and correct me if I'm wrong, doctor, there's a book that helps psychologists define an area that they're looking at so that 
from doctor to doctor, they have a marker to go from. It's like, oh, okay, this is what we're looking at here. And it can be evaluated whether it stays there or maybe moves someplace else. But basically the dictionary for psychological it, issues. It is. And so we call that the DSM. We are now at the DSM-5. And mm-hmm. what is used also around the world is called the you know, the, the ICD-10, which is the from the International Center for Disease. So even in Europe, the criteria pretty much overlap. So around the world, in Africa and Asia, people are using the same model and criteria to assess development because otherwise we'd be comparing apples to oranges and nobody would really be able to talk across cultures or even different aspects of society. So that has uniformed the diagnostic process. It's incredible. But, But one of the other things that's interesting that has happened in recent years is as the diagnostic criteria changed and became more understanding of mild autism, right, that was not so pronounced, the numbers of people with autism statistically went increasingly. So as I said, initially, we've gone from, you know, 10 out of 4,000 or one out of, you know, no, four out of 10,000, I'm sorry, to one out of 58. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think that diagnosis is regularly overdone and everybody is called autistic now. Just as if you look at the history of medicine and, you know, psychiatric and psychological diagnosis, there's certain diagnoses that are in vogue during particular times. They're like the zeitgeist of the times, right? Mm-hmm. Some people have been complaining that autism is way overdiagnosed and, and that these more mild aspects of autism should really not be called autism. And so as the criteria changed, we also had more and more individuals who've been trained specifically in autism. And me, I've gotten my training over 40 years from from the best educators of all. Children and adolescents and adults with autism have taught me how to refine my understanding of the diagnostic process. If an individual is at a high-functioning level of autism, can they be fully integrated into life. Guess what? There there are a lot of people who are professors who have autism. A lot lot of surgeons, mathematicians, physicists, engineers, not all of them, but there's a particular brain associated with autism that is highly valued in our society. And some of the most successful people in the history of Western civilization have had autism. And so a lot of people aren't formally diagnosed, but they're, you know, some of the richest people in the world acknowledge that perhaps that is a defining characteristic of their experience. I'm not going to name names, but, you know, a lot of people in looking at his history and how he presented really believe that Einstein had autism. You know, some of the most brilliant people in the world have autism. I've seen children who have 180 plus IQ who are far smarter than me who have autism. And so right now, you know, traditionally, as people became aware of this more um, nuanced form of autism, I kind of bristle at the notion of higher functioning because I'll, I'll speak to that in a moment. We began to understand that there was this whole range of people with autism who had above average IQ or genius IQs, right? And that we needed a way to intervene with them very differently. But our society is filled with very capable, skilled individuals who have autism. Mm -hmm. Some of the children I follow have one or two parents who are along the autistic spectrum. And many of them are very successful professionally. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole misnomer, right? And so then as we began to understand you could have normal or above average intelligence and still be identified as having autism, people began to say, okay, so when we're talking about high-functioning autism, we need something to anchor that to. So people immediately said, okay, let's link it to IQ. So the way standardized IQ tests are developed is that there's a mean of 100. So when people talk about IQ now, the average, so to speak, mean is 100. Now, the way IQ tests are is established... It, is that true that it's... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that's, that's, you know, so when you administer uh, uh, an IQ test to an individual nowadays, they're all normed to be 100, but then we have what we call standard deviations. So in the traditional IQ test, there's standard deviations of 15. So if you have 100 as the norm, if you have an 85 IQ, you're one standard deviation below the norm. If you have a 70 IQ, you're two standard deviations below the norm. So if you have a 72 IQ on a standardized IQ test, you are called someone having lower average 
intelligence, mm-hmm. right? So people decided, okay, if we're going to talk about high-functioning autism, let's talk about individuals who have IQs 70 or above. Now, part of why I said it's a misnomer earlier is that the real key to one's ability to function in society and integrate in the community is not how smart you are. It's your adaptive behavior skills, your ability to go out in the community, to follow rules, to understand what's expected of you, to communicate on a functional and practical level. And so even though we call high-functioning autism and everybody was focusing on IQ, the real issue is adaptive behavior. Because there's some people who have a 75 IQ who function a lot better out in the world than people who have 130 IQ. So we got to be careful because labels are misguiding. And the real issue is how you live and how you can adjust to the different situations you come face to face with in everyday life. Mm -hmm. That's what identifies all of our ability to function effectively. So if an individual is functioning very well, but is on the autism spectrum, does that mean there's an aspect that is considered negative or it's considered, well, it's an issue that perhaps they want to work on? Is If you're functioning successfully, does it even matter that you have it or is it just an idiosyncrasy right, right, that well, you have? Right. So that's a, that's a big issue because there are tens of millions of people walking around who have autism and have never been diagnosed. And even now, sometimes I diagnose children who are very high functioning and their parents choose not to ever inform them that they have autism, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is a concern because to a good degree, there's a genetic basis for autism. And once children turn 18, they have privileged their own medical information and records. And sometimes kids who are not informed, once they become young adults, are a little upset if their parents haven't shared the diagnosis. Oh, yes, there are lots of people, you know, and... Can you give me an example of, like, a a behavior, like, somebody that's functioning, and maybe, you know, maybe I turn 18, I'm like, oh, well, you've been diagnosed with autism. I mean, what does that mean? Right, so so what I very often see in, in the young people that I follow... And, you know, I follow individuals longitudinally. I, I have a unique perspective on autism. One young man I followed now for 32 years and had a chance to watch him grow from being 6 to 38 years of age. And so understand, we all change developmentally as we grow. Individuals with autism and other developmental disabilities, everybody changes. Nobody stays the same. The question is, if your rate of growth keeps up with what is anticipated for someone of your chronological age, right? So what kind of difficulties do people have? So in elementary school, many of the children I see are very academically proficient. I have kids who get straight A's and take AP classes and get accepted to high-flight universities, right? And are brilliant, but they have trouble making friends. They have trouble with what we call pragmatic language, which means being able to hold social conversations, being able to utilize nonverbal communication, looking at people's bodies, the inflection of their voice, being able to draw social inferences and make guesses about what other people are thinking and motiv- you know, and what their intentions are that motivate their behavior. Because one of the big difficulties for individuals who have milder autism is what we call mind blindness associated with theory of mind. Kids with autism, very often their brain is not wired to understand that other individuals have their own agendas, have their own thoughts and feelings. And so the real difference is they treat other people as a means to an end. They engage others, particularly if they share the same preferential interests, but they see people as individuals there to meet their needs and to further their own goals and wishes. Whereas most of us learn to grow up with a sense of mutuality and our relationship with others are reciprocal in nature. So if you don't have mind blindness, you understand other people have feelings, you understand they're reacting to your words and statements, you understand you have to take their perspective into consideration because individuals with higher functioning autism have trouble with perspective taking. They don't know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. Right. And sometimes young children who aren't diagnosed, parents come in to see me and they worry that they have a child who has sociopathy. But rather you have a child who has a different type of empathy. And if you can't take the perspective of others, your ability to empathize with them is very limited. 
but it's a misnomer to believe that autistic children aren't affectionate, can't be compassionate toward others. But going back to your question, children who walk around the perimeter of the playground and don't have friends to be with, children who don't get invited to birthday parties and are socially isolated, children who, even within the context of their family or extended family, constantly are looking to put in minimal time with individuals and then go off and spend time by themselves. So I have a lot of kids, you know, when Thanksgiving comes and usually extended family might get together, they may spend most of the Thanksgiving in their bedroom alone, particularly nowadays playing video games or on their computer searching the internet, rather than spending time with people who have known them from their birth. Things of that nature. And then what we also see traditionally is, you know, there are many individuals with autism who have difficulty with academic work as it becomes more inferential and abstract in nature. So right now in California, a lot of the early education is very rote-like in nature. But as you transition into fourth grade, the information becomes more abstract. And because developmentally, children are moving closer toward being able to think about thinking and analyze things differently, a lot of kids can whiz through grades one through three. But all of a sudden, in grade four, when you're reading a novel and you have to understand characters and what motivates them or people are speaking more abstractly, then their skill deficits become more visible. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You are listening to Dr. David Monkarsh share his experiences and knowledge about autism and neurodevelopmental disorders on UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer. Now back to the interview. The UCI Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorder. I understand that neurodevelopmental disorder includes autism, ADHD, and intellectual disability. Does that encompass all psychological issues or no there's a lot of other things oh, there's too. a lot of other things okay. you can have children with anxiety disorders you know you have mm-hmm. i see children who have obsessive compulsive disorders you can see children who have behavioral disorders yeah no so and that won't be included in neurodevelopment no disorder. but but it's important to understand that when we look at children or all on individuals you know not that we want to over diagnose people but some people have dual diagnosis And what that means is, if you have autism, doesn't mean you can't have a clinical depression. Doesn't mean that you can't have attention deficit disorder. So a number of the children that I see have both autism and attentional problems. So they may find themselves, you know, on medication to deal with their ADD, right? But one of the things that's really tricky and why it's important to have a lot of experience with kids with autism is very often there's an overlap between the diagnosis of of mild autism and ADD, right? And people with autism generally have attentional problems, not that it's ADD related, you know, in terms of not having sufficient dopamine neurotransmitter in their brain, but what happens is kids with autism tend to underfocus for things they aren't interested in or don't perceive to be relevant to their experience. And I have kids when they're interested in something, they can focus better than neurotypical individuals. And so that's often mistaken as ADD, but it's really an issue of motivation, not the capacity to attend. But as I said, some kids have ADD and autism, but a lot of the population I serve is often misdiagnosed with ADD. So I might see a seven-year-old that people think has attention deficit disorder. They tried she or him on stimulant medication and got a negative reaction and people are scratching their head. And it's really a very bright young person with autism that people thought attention was at the core of their developmental concern, but it had nothing to do with attention. Hmm. So is ADD and ADHD, are those the same? They are. So the ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Disorder with Hyperactivity. So attentional disorders can either be with hyperactivity or without. So if you have ADHD, you know, with hyperactivity, sometimes I see young children who their motor's running all the time. They can't sit still. They're highly easily distracted. There are other children who have ADD and are not hyperactive, but have difficulty with sustained attention and distractibility. 
But one of the other things that makes the differential diagnosis between autism and ADD difficult is a lot of children with autism have sensory-related issues. So when I talk about sensory-related issues, when our sensory processing is working, we just take it for granted. But I have children who have hyperacuity. I mean, they can be in their classroom and they can hear another child shouting three doors down. And they get distracted by sounds that the rest of us can tune out. Right. So most of us, if we're in an environment where there's continual noise, little by little, we habituate to it because our brain teaches us to tune it out. So if you're in a room where the air conditioner is running, how many of us have trouble sustaining our conversation? After a while, you go, okay, that's the air conditioner. Our brain says, put that in a separate place and you don't even pay attention to it. I have kids who come in my office and can't concentrate because their brain won't allow them to stop doing that. So a lot of kids with autism have heightened sensory issues. I have kids who have sniffers who can smell things that nobody else even notices. I have kids who have tactile defensiveness, and from the time they're born when they're infants, when they're picked up and held, instead of being soothed, they cry even harder because it's uncomfortable for them to be touched. So they have to go to an occupational therapist and get training so that they can see touch as something that's not negative. Yeah. It's amazing. So how do you do that? Let's say their attention is distracted by the air conditioner. Right. How do you work on that? Number one, most children who have autism, as part of their assessment process, should be seen by an occupational therapist. And if they have large motor problems... Excuse me just for a moment, doctor. It's interesting how you call it an occupational therapist. I think most of us lay people think, oh, well, that's therapy that you get when you're going to work if you have carpal tunnel issues with the computer or you're a worker doing physical work but occupational therapy can also be for adolescents just doing what they do in their life right or Mm -hmm. infants but what you were describing is physical therapists they're physical therapists and then they're occupational therapists so traditionally physical therapists deal with larger motor issues and muscle issues and i recently hurt my shoulder so i was in physical therapy for a while rebuilding my shoulder but occupational therapists work on fine motor coordination but they also work on sensory processing so Part of what my training at Children's Hospital Los Angeles helped me understand is that there are many different fields of professionalism dealing with children and all individuals and having an approach that allows individuals who have training that I lack look at a child helps create an integrated program of care for an individual. So if I have a child who's having difficulty not listening to that, what I would do is initially I would put a child in a room where there's a sound from an air conditioning you know, going on, and I'd have them engage in their most preferential activity. So a lot of my kids, my young kids love this game called Roblox now, right? And so I would put a child in front of a computer playing Roblox with the air conditioner in the background because what they would do is they would over-focus on their computer and indirectly they would be training themselves to ignore the sound of the air conditioner. So part of what you would do is you would pair them engaged in an activity that from a sensory level is unpleasant. You would pair it with something that is very preferable and positive, and you would bring those two together. So little by little, you know, I don't have a kid who's going to say, no, I'm not going to play Roblox because I don't like the sound of the air conditioner. They're going to go, wow, my desire to play Roblox is so strong, I'm going to begin to train my brain to ignore that air conditioner. Right? So if you pair positive with negative stimuli, very often you can create an adjustment to an environment that a child may view as noxious. And you can transition them from... Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Right. Same thing with sounds. I have kids who are very sensitive with their ears, right? So then what I would do for kids is I would begin to have them listen to headphones of something they really enjoy. Or play, imagine they're watching a cartoon, it's their favorite cartoon. I would vary the volume of the television. I would start at a level they're comfortable at, and then I would up it a notch. Now, is a child gonna say, I'm not watching my favorite cartoon because it got a little bit louder? No. So that's part of what we do in terms of reconditioning is to pair positive and negative stimuli to help with that kind of transition. And then, also, there's a place for speech therapists and audiologists because there's specific programs that deal with being hyper-acute 
and they begin to do it with a set of headphones that begins to desensitize in that way with very specific frequencies. Because just like some people can't tolerate scratching their fingernails on a blackboard, all of us have certain tones that we can't tolerate. It's different for each individual. So audiologists have written software programs and computer applications that begin to desensitize from even a more methodological and scientific perspective. Hmm. It's fascinating. We literally, every person on the planet, there are sounds that they just can't tolerate. I think so. What also is interesting is that everybody on the planet has a different brain. You know, we all take it for granted that we all share the same brain. We don't. Some people have strengths in auditory processing, others in visual processing. Some people need a multi-sensory approach because if they can't see what they're hearing, they can't integrate it into their memory and sustain and encode that information. And so we walk along thinking we're all the same, but everybody has a unique brain because there's so many variables by which a brain functions and nobody has the same combination. Yeah. It's just amazing. Right, yeah. But it gets glossed over as long as people have fundamental skills. We aren't always inquiring. You know, people like me, I'm always interested in what kind of brain each individual. But you know, in the last 40 years, I've spent more of my waking life with individuals with autism than people who don't have autism. Because I'm in my office all day. Many days I see eight individuals with autism. And I just get to be you know, on the weekends and come home at night to my family. But all the rest of my waking life is with individuals with autism. Interesting. In 1988, there was a famous movie, Rain Man. Right. Can you describe when that movie came out? Was it impressive? Were you excited? Were there issues that came up? Well, yes. So, so, you know, number one, I was very happy because in 1988, a lot of people weren't talking about autism. Because individuals with autism, you know, particularly autism like Dustin Hoffman presented with, they often don't vote. They don't have political power. You know, our politicians are, are not, you know, providing money for both research and for treatment for individuals in our community who have disability. And so the, my first response was, thank goodness that this is being brought openly into the world. And the relationship between Dustin Hoffman and his brother was lovely to see his neurotypical brother really care for him and get him. But you know what? Dustin Hoffman was an individual, you know, some people would say, okay, is he somebody who had high functioning autism? If you would have looked at what his IQ potentially could be, you could make an, you know, I don't know where he would fall, but maybe he wouldn't reach 70. He had splinter skills, right? Because the developmental process for autism is like Swiss cheese. Some people have skills well advanced to their chronological age and then they have some fundamental skills you would assume they mastered far earlier in their life, and they don't get it. So in that movie, it really brought to the American public autism in a way that had not been rendered quite so visible before. But, you know, he was an individual who had a unique skill of memory. Mm-hmm. And what he could do with storing road information was amazing. In some respects, he is reflective of someone who had a savant-like skills. Most individuals with autism are not savants. There are people with autism who are savants. There are individuals now in the world who can listen to a Beethoven piano concerto and play it from ear the first time they hear it, right? So he was a savant, and so he wasn't fully reflective of the broad range of skills and and skill deficits in the autism community, but it got everybody talking about autism. Mm-hmm. And now, as autism has become more prevalent it, because of better identification, very few people don't know someone whose life hasn't been touched by autism. Mm-hmm. In Orange County, you know, one of my friends created the Grandparents Autism Network for grandparents to be educated about autism and how to participate in their, their children's lives, right? You know, everywhere I go, when I tell people that I work with individuals with autism, almost always people want to talk with me about autism nowadays. Because there's a lot of curiosity, not because suddenly people are studying autism the way I do, but people's lives are touched. They're grandchildren. They have a friend who has a child with autism or a cousin with autism. And autism is part of all of our lives. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. 
My guest is autism expert, Dr. David Monkarsh. Now we find out about Asperger's syndrome. Asperger's syndrome, what is that? Okay, around the time of the 50s, there was a psychiatrist in the United States named Kanner who was the first person to identify autism. At the same time frame, in Austria, there was a developmental pediatrician called Hans Asperger who began to identify in clinics individuals who looked very much like autistic individuals, but they had no delay in their language development, right? Mm -hmm. And then in England, there was a child psychologist, and I think she may still be alive, named Lorna Wing, who translated Asperger's work into English, and it didn't get disseminated into the United States for many, many years. Asperger's is a form of high-functioning autism, so to speak, because those individuals have IQs that are average or above average in nature, but one of the unique qualities of Asperger's for diagnostic purposes is that they weren't supposed to have any language delay. A lot of the children that I see who are even you know, quite precocious had a language delay. So from a developmental perspective, we look at individuals, usually in the first year of life, we expect a child to acquire a single word. But by the time they're 24 months of age, we expect them to be able to put two words together. And in their third year of life, we expect small phrases to be put together from a perspective of language development. So initially, the primary differentiator between high-functioning autism and Asperger's syndrome had to do with whether or not children met those markers in the first two years of life for an expressive language delay, meaning a spoken ability to speak, not necessarily to understand. But for me, from the very beginning, it was really a misnomer because young people with Asperger's have this difficulty I mentioned earlier of pragmatic language and also a problem in social cognition or social thinking. They couldn't draw social inferences. They couldn't read nonverbal communication. They had one-sided conversations. Very often they were known as little professors because they were didactic even when they were this big. So I've had little kids three years old come in and talk down to me in lecturing because they can know more about dinosaurs than me. One of the things for people to look out for that's amazing is as one of the potential qualities that we use for differential diagnosis, if you have a young child who has an overall fascination with a single topic, you know, very often dinosaurs, volcanoes, things of that nature, and that's all they're interested in, and that's all they speak to people about, even if other people aren't interested in it, very often that can be reflective of autism, and children change from one thing to another. So I, I've had five-year-olds who know so much about dinosaurs that you think they're paleontologists. It's just amazing because they have minds that can bring in factual information and store it, and not always true because, you know, but many individuals with autism have an auditory or visual memory that's like a hard drive. Once they hear or see something, they never forget it. Mm. So I have kids, you know, I have kids who come to my office, you know, I have a lot of toys and a, a play cabinet. They come into my office and say, I see a child every other week and I miss an appointment. They come in four weeks later and they look at my play chest and they see where something's been moved. And they say, how come that's not where it was last time? So that memory is often a very powerful strength for individuals, right? And they also notice things that are not the same. Because one of the primary defining characteristics of autism is problems in dealing with change and novelty or transitioning from one situation to another. Mm -hmm. Because very often people with autism, their brains are designed to need closure. So I have a lot of kids in class who are industrious and say they're working on their math, but the teacher needs to segue to another subject and knows that everybody in the class hasn't finished their math problems. All the other kids are putting their books away. A lot of the kids are going, thank goodness we get to finish math early because I hate math. I have a child who's going to have a temper tantrum because they can't stop doing their math until they finish the assignment. They can't transition to something new because their brain seeks a degree of closure far greater than the other children around them. Can you teach? Can you train? We're done with our math. Even though you're not done, we're going to move on. Can oh, you? absolutely. Yeah. So here, here's the wonderful news from a prognostic perspective. A lot of these skill deficits that kids with autism don't acquire without teaching. 
just through observation and living, they can all be taught. You teach it to their head so that they can intellectually mediate it, and you teach it behaviorally because, you know, we have motor memory. All of us are creatures of habit and routine. You begin to help create new habits so that what was once uncomfortable and unfamiliar, once you turn that into routine, they will do that nonstop and it will become comfortable. Oh yes, so, so that's the wonderful thing we've discovered in the last many years. Behaviorally, we can train children to do most anything. And that's why early intervention is so important, is the young brain is developing so quickly, growing connections far quicker than at any other time in life. And if you can intervene early, and that's why now more and more people are identifying kids with autism in infancy. And even if you can't absolutely say a child has autism, we can identify developmental delays I was doing it with three and six month olds. And so intervening behaviorally, teaching new behaviors, teaching new ways to do things, helping individuals adapt to change, mm -hmm. all of this can be done. And so the lives of individuals along the spectrum with what we know now is increasingly hopeful and promoting their ability to integrate successfully into the community. Wow. The wow. real issue is, is our community going to change sufficiently to embrace these individuals and appreciate the diversity of brains walking around them so that individuals who have struggles get to be part of our mainstream naturalistic environments? Because if we don't get children out in the world with our typically developing children, how are we going to expect them as adults to move seamlessly into the community and have the life we all want for our children? I understand that fundraising is important for your programs. Is there an upcoming, did I see a run or 5K or well, walk or do you know? Well, well, so I don't know. You know, I, I didn't look at the autism yeah. spot, but let me put in a pitch. There are a lot of worthy causes in our community and there are a lot of individuals who have developmental challenges not associated with autism and we should all support helping everybody in our community getting to be a full member of our community. But... In relation to autism, the Center for Autism does wonderful work for our community, and I hope people will go onto their website and support, not just emotionally, but financially, because you know what? There's still more research being done, but we need more people being trained who can help children. You know, when I started doing this, I was a voice out in the dark, and thankfully now many, many people are acquiring expertise in autism. Please, you know, for those of you who are listening, I hope what we've talked about today is promoted, not just an understanding, but perhaps heightened your curiosity to learn more about the many individuals with autism in our community. But like everything else, money will help facilitate growth and understanding of how to integrate and support individuals who have challenges beyond what most of us experience. Thank you for that, Doctor. In terms of where you started back in the 1990s, what have been big revelations for you? Can you describe one or two of those that, you know, how it's like, well, that's what I thought it was then. But boy, my understanding was not correct that it's changed now. Can you just... Well, so, so I really haven't had big revelations from a clinical perspective. My big revelation has to do with society's response to this growing number of individuals with autism that we didn't recognize. So many, many years ago, 20 or so years ago, I was involved with a lot of the larger agencies in Orange County, uh, the County Department of Education, Regional Center, school districts, where we came together to form you know, an interdisciplinary autism group that met once a month at the County Department of Education. And as the result of that, there began to be specialized training for teachers and school psychologists to be able to both identify and provide programming for individuals with autism. And so I was excited because more and more individuals began to get trained so that they could provide good services. There were a lot of, there was a mobilization, so there was a lot of training for professionals, right? And so for many, many years, Orange County became very successful at developing early intervention programs that were often applied behavioral analysis programs in nature. But one of the things that we've seen is that as 
the cohort of young individuals with autism are growing up, the resources began to diminish. And as children hit middle school and high school, and you know many of the kids I see go to college, the resources weren't there. And so there was this big thrust of money for early intervention that everybody knew it was important. But then society's will to support these individuals as, as they grew older diminished. And so, so that's the big change that I see that has hurt my heart. Mm. For all of you who are listening and vote, please speak to your representatives to let everybody know that all the children that a lot of resources financially and emotionally were put into so that they would have a better shot at life. They're in middle school, they're in high school now, they're in college, they're looking for jobs so that they can be out as working individuals contributing to our society. Raise your voices. Thank you, Doctor. Taking a step back to ask you this personal question, what advice would you give to your younger self? Knowing you've had a long career, you're still active and fully working. How about in self-reflection, does anything come to mind that you would give yourself advice? Well, I would say be less arrogant because when I first started learning about autism, initially I thought I knew a lot more than I really have come to know over 40 years. So as a young professional, I wish I were more humble and had a better handle of you know what I knew and what I didn't know. I wish that I, you know, even though I've been involved in training professionals in this community since, you know, 1982 or 83, I sometimes wish that I had taken more time away from my private practice to be more actively involved in training um, so that I could share more of what I've had the wonderful opportunity to learn. And I think that I should have been more vocal politically you know, I put in my little pol political, you know, thing because I realized that with all the people in Orange County who are doing wonderful work to support children and families with autism, the political sphere was something that I, I ignored to a larger degree because it's our politicians who create social policy and provide money. And as I said earlier, everybody deserves to be a full member of our community. Doctor, thank you very much for being with us today. We have covered a lot of territory that I didn't even know we would go into. So thank you very, very much for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me.